death is a gift. I think that is a perspective that we as Muslims should really become comfortable with and adopt. And the way I read into that too is that this dunya is taught to us or told to us to be one of hardship. It is the abode of trial and tribulation. Death, inshallah, will be our rest. That will be our transition and our return to our beloved, compassionate Lord, where our souls, from the moment they exist in this world until the moment we die, we are looking to reconnect to Allah because in our pre-embodied you know, existence, our soul was with Allah and we just want to return back to that. And so every longing that we feel in life, I feel like on a deeper level, on a deeper spiritual level, that's our soul crying out to be connected to the one who created the creation. So our grief in a way is also a grief for or a longing for Allah to be connected back to him. And death is a gift and that it connects us back to him. We say that if we knew our expiration dates, we would live life differently. Yet it's written that tomorrow is not guaranteed and we still go on living our lives no differently. You're listening to Unsween and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 13 of season 3. In today's episode, I sit down with Sundus Khulaki, who is a Muslim chaplain, to discuss a topic most of us intentionally avoid, and that is the topic of death. But what if we chose to view death as a gift? What if we realized that there is so much more to learn from loss and grief? In this discussion, we come face to face with our own mortality and the art of grieving. I will keep this short and sweet, the same way that this dunya is, but it's also due to the fact that I'm losing my voice, which is every podcaster's worst nightmare. But on a serious note, death, loss, and grief are some of the things we struggle with navigating. It can be a journey filled with a roller coaster of emotions, and one that we may never know how to proceed without a generous amount of caution. As most of you may know, I had lost both of my grandmothers three months apart a few years ago. Their loss was a reality check I wasn't prepared for. Grief became a part of me, something I will never be able to escape. But through the pain and the loss, I had cultivated a relationship with Allah like no other. It's truly a wake-up call when you realize that death is written for every one of us. But why is it that we avoid talking about it? What do we truly fear when it comes to this concept? Is it the fact that we will one day depart this dunya? Or is it that we fear we are not fulfilling our purpose? I want to thank Chaplain Sundus Khuliki for taking the time to share with us what it means to be a chaplain and what has death personally taught her. We dive into the process of grieving and the many forms it takes on. Recently, I was reading a book called Between Two Kingdoms and it mentioned how grief is a ghost that visits you without warning and how life embodies both love and grief. This is a discussion that Sundus beautifully leads with compassion and understanding where she teaches us not to fear death, but to embrace this reality and to not become overwhelmed when we find ourselves at the intersection of joy and grief and life and death. I also want to take a moment to give my condolences to the family of Chaplain Suhaib Sultan, who was Princeton's first ever Muslim chaplain and Sundas's first mentor. He is someone who has led a life of inspiration, compassion, kindness, and so much more. May Allah grant him the highest of heavens, inshallah. Let's dive in. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Chaplain Sundas, for joining me in today's discussion surrounding loss and grief. You know, we have all at one point or another experienced grief, and most of us, if not all, struggle with the concept of navigating loss. Before we dive in, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners, briefly explain what a chaplain is and why this career path specifically intrigued you? Sure. Thank you so much, Dunya, for having me on the podcast. It really is my honor and my privilege to join you and all the listeners. So my name is Sundus Khuluqi, and I was actually born in Damascus, Syria, but my parents moved to the United States when I was just under two years old. And so I was raised here in Southern California, where I live now with my husband and my two teenage children, which is always interesting. I studied English and creative writing at UCLA, and then I took basically 10 years off, which is not by choice to figure out what I wanted to do in life. So I had this dream of being like an American Muslim novelist and write these stories. And especially it came after I was in college during 9-11, when 9-11 happened. So I felt like to reintroduce Islam to America through art and through writing was going to be like my passion and my thing. Then I started, I had both my kids pretty close in, in age, like together. And then I got busy with them and I just kind of lost any creative writing inspiration. I just maybe the physical and mental toll that having children takes on you. And so I went with my kids and my husband to a family camp. I think this was back in 2014, I want to say 2014 or 2015. And at that camp, it was a Muslim family camp. I met the first Muslim chaplain that I've ever known in my life. It was actually Chaplain Suhaib Sultan, who was serving at Princeton University and is actually battling um, stage four cancer. May Allah have mercy on him and heal him. I mean, and when I met him, Dunya, he had, just by seeing him, I hadn't even spoken to him yet. He had this grace and this groundedness and this compassionate presence that really took me aback and I had never seen in a person before. And mind you, this is coming on the heels of 10 years of me thinking, what do I want to do with my life? Like, how are all the different strands of my history going to converge into something that I can make meaningful and like have my, my imprint right on this earth and during my life? And, and I was really struck by the activities that he brought into the camp, spiritual activities that I had never he introduced Islam in a way to me, that was never introduced before through these poetry readings, new ways of looking at Quranic ayat, sitting in nature and talking about that. So I basically followed him around, like shamelessly, <laughs> for the entire camp time and just kept tapping him on the shoulder and be like, Chaplain Sohaib, like, what do you, what is it that you do at work? Tell me about your nine to five. What does that look like? And everything that he was describing to me, Dunya, was it was almost like a mental checklist. And I was just checking off box after box after box of what I had been looking for and never realized actually existed as a career path. And so he was gracious enough to uh, give me his contact information and was so supportive and encouraging and said, you have to go get your Master of Divinity degree, find a program that supports either interfaith chaplaincy or Islamic chaplaincy, which back then was like only Hartford Seminary at the time. And I couldn't do that because I'm in Southern California family. And he said, do your CPE, which is the clinical kind of training on, on the ground training, um, do your CPE units, and then eventually you get board certified and then, you know, you can find your way from there. Um, and so I kind of put that in my back pocket for uh, a couple more years because I was doing some other work and I couldn't get out of it. And then subhanAllah, I found a program here in like my backyard at Claremont 
School of Theology, they were the only, that was the only seminary that was offering interfaith chaplaincy, which could include Islamic chaplaincy, but wasn't like specific to it. From there, it was like God moment after God moment after God moment. So when you know that Allah has written something for you, and when it's meant for you, things just unfold in ways that even if you try to plan it, you couldn't have planned it as perfectly. And so the, the last story I'll share is that I applied for a CST, Claremont School of Theology and the Interfaith Chaplaincy Program. I was all ready to do it. I got accepted. I was so excited. And then I reached out to the Muslim um, president of like the Islamic Studies Department on campus, which is called Bayan at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, look for me on campus. I'm going to be joining you guys, you know, in the fall as, you know, an interfaith chaplaincy student. I'm going to be doing chaplaincy, inshallah. And he called me right away because I had texted him. He just called me. He's like, you'll never believe this, but I just walked out of a meeting with our board and we just approved the first Master of Divinity degree for Islamic chaplaincy for our program. Will you be one of the first students in that cohort? SubhanAllah, from then on, like just the timing of it and everything was just so, so blessed that of that. A lot of people don't know what a chaplain is or does. Like myself, I had only heard of chaplaincy in the prison context. So I understood that there were chaplains for, for prison context and not for anything else. So I was struck by like a Muslim chaplain working at a university like Princeton. Wow, what does that person do? And I actually went into the program still unable to define what a chaplain is. It wasn't until I was really doing my training that I began to formulate for myself what it is that a chaplain does. The definition I often give, and that's still kind of vague and nebulous, is a chaplain provides emotional and spiritual support to people who are in crisis. But chaplains mainly serve in a lot of different contexts, but the ones that are most known are um, military, prison, education, and hospitals where I'm at. So I'm serving as a hospital chaplain at two hospitals here in Southern California. Now there are more chaplains in different contexts. So we have community chaplaincy. There are actually some chaplains at Masajid that are working alongside imams because they have different training and different skill sets. We have street chaplaincy, chaplains who are literally out in the streets for certain contexts. And then the funniest one that I that I learned about two years ago, my family and I went on vacation. And as I'm reading through like the little brochures that they give out to, to families of like activities and things, it was on a cruise. And it was like, if you'd like to visit the chaplain, and I was like, hey, maybe a new like career path for myself. You can be like, to, like, That's amazing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> be a cruise chaplain. So basically anywhere where there's potential for crisis and people to be in need of somebody to be by them, there's there's a place for a chaplain there. That's incredible. I think nowadays we definitely need a chaplain in every space. If I can bump into a street chaplain, that would be also amazing because sometimes, you know, these mental breakdowns, they come out of nowhere. So thank you so much for explaining that. It's interesting because, yeah, I never really knew what a chaplain was. And I think in a previous interview, you said something along the lines of how you felt like, you know, the hospital was like a masjid for you. And I was like, that's so profound because in a way, I guess I'll explain this a little bit later in our conversation. But like when I visit my grandmother at the cemetery, I feel like that's almost like my masjid. I think that's where I feel the most connected to God. And that's somewhere that some people avoid at all costs. Yet that's my place of solace, my place of where I truly, truly feel connected to God and still feel connected to my grandmother. But can you explain that feeling from your perspective and how you feel like the hospital is like a masjid for you? And I'd love to hear about why the the cemetery is a place for you. And I think there will be connections there between ours. But I feel like uh, ever since I've been working, it's been about four years now in the hospital context. 
the hospital is where real life is. I feel like at the minute I step out of the hospital, I'm back in the fakeness. I'm back in the the lahu and la'ab, which is how the Quran talks about dunya, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's like this world is as a distraction. This dunya is a distraction for us. And so when I'm in the hospital, you're talking to people who are dealing with really, really big decisions with difficult news, with difficult forks in the road in their life. And they want to talk about that. And not only do they want to talk about that, they want to process that moment through their faith or their belief structure or their philosophy. So you're having these really beautiful conversations and learning from people of all ages what life means or meant to them, what death means to them, what their purpose is or they want their purpose and their legacy to be in life. And it's like it's different than having a like an accounting job, let's say, where you don't have those opportunities to to reflect on God and your life and death five days a week or more. And so I consider it such a privilege and such an honor. And, and I've learned about Islam and what it means to be a Muslim on such a deeper level than I ever have more than any seminar, conference, textbook, anything that you could have thrown at me. This is experiential faith. And not only from my own, but also being able to honor the space of learning how other people's faiths inform them. So one of the questions I, I receive often is, how can you as a Muslim chaplain pray with somebody who's non-Muslim? Or how can you support somebody who's non-Muslim in a completely different you know, theology from you? And I would, I, I always say, subhanAllah, you learn that people are so much more than the labels that we put on them. I know we say that all the time, but when you're sitting directly across from somebody and you're looking them in the eyes and you say the eyes are the soul, the windows to the soul, at, at some point in the conversation, it becomes not to a Muslim and a non-Muslim speaking. It's two human souls and two human beings who are sitting and witnessing each other and trying to figure out life. That's such a beautiful explanation. Honestly, I kind of almost teared up when you were talking. I think this is going to be an emotional conversation. I think when it comes to grief, which I'll talk about a little bit later, it's it really has no expiration date. And, you know, we've all experienced grief at one point or another. Sometimes it's not even a physical loss of somebody. There's different forms of loss, but it was beautiful. And by the way, I'm an accountant myself. So yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you five days out of the week. I'm just, you know, just crunching numbers. And I think this is why I'm at a crisis point in my you life. You are an accountant. Yes. I'm an accountant. Oh my gosh. I think you told me that and I completely forgot by the way. But that's exactly Exactly. I'm so sorry, Demi. I didn't mean to use that example. No, thank you. Because honestly, it's that's exactly why I've been sharing with everybody on my podcast why I've been having such like a tug of war literally with my job because I feel like here I am five days out of the week, 40 hours, and I'm literally just crunching numbers. It's like I feel like my hayat, like what am I doing in my in my life? You know, obviously, yes, it's a good paying job. Yes, I should be grateful. I know this. But at the same time, I'm thinking bigger. I'm thinking of my akhirah. Like, what am I doing in this dunya that's going to benefit me in my akhirah? You know what I mean? So this is like one of my favorite conversations, anything related to our faith, anything related with loss and grief. And the reason why I completely agree with you, the reason why I feel like I feel so connected to Allah when it comes to the cemetery, it's like all the distractions are gone. Typically, and I know some people get scared, typically when I'm at the cemetery, I'm there alone too, but it's in a 
kind of a residential area. So don't worry, everybody, I am safe. I'm not completely alone. But it's almost like here I am and I'm facing reality like head on. Like this is somebody who had a life. This is somebody who I called my grandmother, who I shared stories with, who I hugged, who I laughed with and everything. And I felt like in an instant, in an instant. I mean, that's how the Quran even describes our life. But in an instant, she was just, you know, she passed away and here I am visiting her gravestone. It hits me every time, every time I visit and I go there for that reality check, bring me back to the purpose of our lives and what are we exactly doing? I think I go there to just for reflection. And sometimes, yes, I do cross paths with people who they're grieving for the first time. They just lost this person. It's it's a fresh wound. And then there's somebody like me who it's not a fresh wound, but I'm still grieving in a way. SubhanAllah, like we're all on this path of grief and it's, it's just such an interesting place to be. And I I think that's why I, I feel so connected. The masjid is so beautiful. It really is. But again, there is a lot of distractions. But it's like when I go to the cemetery, I literally feel so close and so, so, so connected to Allah and even just our faith and my grandmother. And subhanAllah, it's just, it's such a beautiful feeling. And I've been going every weekend ever since she's passed. And it's been three years now. Everybody grieves in their own way. But for me, this is what brings ease to my heart. So subhanAllah, I think it's just so beautiful how we can connect in that way. Again, we have to be reminded Allah is everywhere. I, I want to talk about how do you find space in these rooms in these rooms of grieving families and the patient who they're on the brink of losing their life how do you find space for yourself between these intimate moments first i'll add something about the cemetery which i love dunya what you just described and and i hope people are really you know paying close attention to everything that you just said because it is a practice that's very highly encouraged in our tradition to visit the cemetery and now, unfortunately, living in the West, the cemetery is so kind of cordoned off somewhere else where you have to enter through these gates. And it seems really, really like a much bigger deal. Yeah, it is very intimidating. It's a great word. And before, I think in like in different countries, the cemetery would be in between residential you know, areas. It would be in between businesses. You would just pop up on it on your way to something else. The reminder was always there. It was always present in everybody's everyday life. And the more that we can go to the cemetery and spend time there, whether we have somebody specific or whether we go and we just go to the Muslim section of the graveyard and pray, uh, you know, recite Fatiha over their graves or just wander around and look at different people's headstones and honor their lives. You know, last Ramadan was the first time I actually took my kids to the cemetery. I told them we were going on a field trip in the middle of the day. And uh, I told my husband to like take work. We need about two hours. I didn't tell him where we were going. We just showed up there and we walked around for about an hour and the kids just got quieter and quieter and quieter. And you know, the whining at first and then just really starting in, especially when we got to the portion of the graveyard where they saw a lot of kids who, who lost their lives at 12, 13, 14, 15, who were being honored as like their soccer players, like their life was interrupted and at pivotal moments. Um, and it really started some really, really great conversations there. But uh, you were asking about making space for myself in the room. That's a really, really good question. Interesting. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Basically, like you said, I try to walk gently and softly, which is also a Quranic mandate for us to be doing, really honoring that I am coming in as a stranger. In chaplaincy, we have this title of one of many of chaplains, this image of intimate stranger. And that really what is what I am in that moment. I'm sharing one of maybe the most intimate moments in family's life as complete strangers. We've never known each other and we'll probably never see each other again. So on one hand, there's comfort for them in that because 
I'm just somebody who can come in and out. They can say whatever they need to, to me, and it's completely confidential and get it out of their system. And then it's done. It's gone. It's really about reading the room. And we have a lot of training that we do. I introduce myself as chaplain. Sometimes I just say spiritual care. Um, because sometimes chaplain is associated or connotes something that's a little bit more than what I'm really bringing, which is just emotional support. I host them as if they are in my home. So as hosts, we really work to make people feel as comfortable as possible, not to impose on them, to make them feel loved and cared for, to really understand that when people lash out in anger, that it's really derives from their grief and is nothing personal. Um, but I'm also there not only as host, but as guest. Like we talked about, I'm I'm a guest. So I always ask for permission to be, to come into the room. And sometimes that permission is denied. And I'm totally okay with that, that they, they want their time by themselves. But as the guest in the guest role, I let them lead. I'm really keeping an eye on the, sometimes the quietest person in the room is the one who needs the most support really just holding and creating space that feels safe for them to be able to talk about the patient. Usually the patient at the end of life is not alert, not oriented, maybe is sedated, just is really out of it in and out. I'm aware that they're still listening and their soul is still present. And so very much aware of what's being discussed in the room. But I also like to use that time for the family members who are present to do some life review of the patient. So I ask like, can you tell me a little bit about mom? Can you tell me a little bit about grandpa? Tell me about, you know, whoever it is. Do you have any memories? You know, I really, I say, I really like to get to know who the patient is rather than just patient. And then also create space for them to be able to honor the person's life and really talk about them in meaningful ways. Sometimes there are funny memories that come up and and the whole room is like laughing, crying, right? But I'll tell you, Dunya, that even four years into this, I still get butterflies before I have to, you never know what you're going to get behind the door. You never know what the experience is going to be. So always making the intention to ground myself before going in, doing a deep breath. Du'at Musa is one that I say a lot. And just like being like a lot, do do what you got to do, right? Um, and, and I'm just there to, to witness and to respect and to honor and hold space. And then when I notice that, usually when the conversation starts to quiet, when everybody's looking at the patient physically, like just they're directing their attention towards them, then I, I offer to bring in beverages or whatever else they might need for their comfort. And I'll just let them know. I understand this is really precious time. And so I'm just going to step out, check on other patients and things like that. Would it be okay for me to check back in with you guys in a little bit? And then they can say, no, we're good. Or yeah, please come on back. Um, and so just really, really, it's, it's all about attentiveness. It's about being able to read the room. I, I think that's so important. I, I just really want to honor you, this for your work, because I think it's such beautiful work. And I don't know if you feel the gratitude from others when you are in that room. But when it came to my grandmother's Aza, we necessarily didn't have a chaplain, but she is like an Estada, and her name is Estada Lina. And I can't explain to you how just her coming in and just talking to us, it just brought relief to us. It just calmed us down. She was asking the same questions that you were asking and everything like that. And sometimes you just need that. Sometimes you just need that that little nudge to just remind yourself of the beautiful moments, the grand moments, the good memories that you had with them. And when she did that, it just changed the whole mood of the room and it kind of uplifted us. And I'll always remember that Aza is just being so calm and so peaceful. And all it took is one person just to come in and talk to us about the person who passed away. And I thought it was just so, so beautiful. We bring up something really important, which is also with chaplaincy is the non-anxious presence. 
when there's a room full of anxious people or grieving people, the reason that I do my grounding and my breathing is so I don't bring any of that nervousness or anxiety into the room with me. But like you said, it's this, it's this sinking up, right? So when they say a lot of psychology studies that have been done suggest that when their non-anxious presence comes into the room of anxious, like the they sink. The anxiousness sinks to the non-anxiousness and that kind of brings uh, a balance and a comfort to the entire room, which is really interesting that you brought it up and that you noticed that. So panel, isn't it like how the reason why we pray in groups is because our hearts sink with one another? Like in that on that day, I remember I made sure like I kind of allowed my heart to sink to hers, even though we weren't standing next to each other, but we were fairly close. I mean, this was my grandmother. So I was just, we were like all huddled around her. And it was just, it was such a beautiful feeling just to have somebody kind of calm our nerves down and and just have a different, just a different person just talking about something else than us just mourning the loss of my grandmother. So I thought it was beautiful. But I think when it comes to the topic of death, for the longest, I just almost kind of also view death like as a punishment. But we fail to kind of see the Allah created everything in pairs. Um, this is something that you've spoken about in your book, which we'll talk about inshallah towards the end. And I read your book and I absolutely loved it. But can we talk about the duality of life? You mentioned how Allah gives us a life cycle that includes death. And that's a different way to look at it instead of just saying, oh, our life ends in death. That's it. And it's so morbid. No. Um, and I kind of want to almost move away from the word morbid when we are talking about death too. I want to normalize it. Again, this is somebody who goes to the cemetery every weekend. I think it's time to normalize the topic of death and not feel like it's so morbid and allow it to be brought up in conversations with our family and friends. This is something that we're all going to go through. You know, I know it's a reality check. Nobody wants to hear, but it's- My family yeah. is tired of me. Yes. <laughs> we, we do it for fun. I'm like, guys, let's go through our five wishes that we want at the end of life when we're sitting around and my parents are like uh no thank you for that normalizing absolutely and I'll I'll have some ideas towards the end that I uh, suggestions of how we can begin doing that with ourselves and and our loved ones around us which is really important Um, and I'll speak a little bit to why that's important especially what I've seen as a chaplain as a hospital chaplain but to your point I, I love again that you picked that that up and I think the duality and bringing the opposites is something that is a rahman a blessing from Allah ta'ala it gives us appreciation for the good times and a grounding in the bad times and patience. So when I think about like those who patiently persevere when they're through hardship, one of the things that helps people is to remember the times when not in hardship. And that gives them patience and hope to be able to imagine a better place because they had been there. And alternatively, on the flip side of it, when you're in a time of relief and in time of constriction, and then we have um, openings as well, when you're in time that we can remember the times that we were in hardship, and that is meant to humble us. So one of my teachers, when I went through something really challenging, and went through my own grief process, my teacher told me something I'll never forget, which is, I don't want you to purposely push those memories out of your like subconscious but rather I want you to remember what happened every single day of your life and I'm like what that's usually not the advice you get like oh okay you've passed it it's done you know like you move on but his his reasoning was that you remember that Allah allowed you to stumble that you stumbled or somebody stumbled or something fell short in your life and you carry that with you just a little bit a little piece of it day by day that's supposed to humble you, to allow you to approach Allah in a state where you are most fragile and most raw and say, yeah, Allah, without you, I cannot do this. Because if we've ever, if, if we have had the privilege of being in a state of grief before and being able to taste that heartbreak, 
and what that's like and the du'as that came out of us in that moment. Even the posture of our bodies, our heads bowed, maybe on our knees, maybe in sujood, like our, our foreheads pressed to the ground. What was our du'a like in that moment versus right now when we're just comfortable and happy and things are, are just fine? There's a real difference and there's a difference in experience. And so if we can remember that, just a, a little part of it and carry that with us every day, how much more meaningful is every step we're going to take? And Dunya, I'm reminded of your story that since your grandmother, Allahumma's death, you've started, like, look what it's prompted in your own life. So no death is purposeless and no life is purposeless. We usually talk about wanting to make our lives purposeful. Well, our deaths are purposeful too. And maybe not for us, but maybe for somebody else who has been affected by it. And that begins their prompting and their searching and their seeking. Every time you speak, mashallah, it's just, it's so beautiful and it's very calming. This is definitely your passion. And I, I'm glad that you were able to merge with your passion in this dunya. It's, it's just beautiful. And I think, you know, when I think about death, I don't know if it's something that you mentioned, but it was, it was just something so beautiful. If you look at it this way, that death is just a transition between this temporary dunya and the permanence of the afterlife. And this is the moment that we get to meet our creator. Like, isn't that what we're living for? Isn't that the whole purpose of this dunya? Like, imagine just us continuously living and living and living and there's no end to it like then what is the purpose of this dunya but the purpose of this dunya is to be tested and then to one day meet our creator when i look at death in that way subhanallah it, it challenges me to do better in this dunya because i'm going to meet my creator i think why we also kind of struggle with this idea and the concept of death what we truly fear is not living the life we know we were created to live i think a lot of us again like i said i'm a struggling accountant is this what i want to do for the rest of my life so i feel like sometimes we're so hard on ourselves when it comes to the purpose of our soul and why it's in this dunya there's an author her name is halwa she's author of secrets of divine love and she recently shared something along the lines of like if your heart has a pulse then your life has a purpose. And I was like, wow, that is just such a beautiful thing. Like I know obviously every day there's a reason why I wake up because Allah has a purpose for me, but to write it in that way is, is beautiful in itself. But do you think that's why we fear death? Because we feel like we focus so highly on our shortcomings in this dunya? Or what are your thoughts on why we kind of avoid the topic of death? I think it could be different things for different people. So I'm thinking about, you know, when I, when I talk about death, and do talks about it with youth groups or with, you know, older of all ages, right? One of the first questions that is on my mind is what has your experience been with death? Have you experienced the death of a loved one at all? You know, how was that process for you? Was that traumatic? Have you not really experienced death to the point where it's just a big question mark for you? It's like so much unknown. And I think our contemporary society, it doesn't help where we're just so completely disconnected from the process. Like we talked about the cemeteries are fenced off or are, you know, outside of where we usually do our own thing. I even tell like my kids, you know, for Halloween, the one thing that really bothers me about Halloween, I know different things for different people, but for myself personally, is just the way that they make death seem so scary. And so, so traumatic. And to me, I'm like, it's actually a really beautiful process. And the way that our tradition, the Quran talks about it, like you said, exactly. It is a transition to meet our Lord. Um, so I, I asked that, what is your experience with death? Has it been traumatic? Has it been elusive? Do people who are around us talk about it or not? Is it a taboo subject? I think all of that plays into it. But what you're getting at, I think, is more existential about you don't feel ready to die yet because we feel like we haven't found what we were meant to live for. 
And that is, that can feel really frustrating. It can feel really debilitating. And I think back to those 10 years of my wandering that I call it before I was able to, I stumbled upon chaplaincy, just come to that by the grace of Allah. And really it it clicked for, for me on every level. I would not have wanted to die in those 10 years because I didn't have anything figured out yet. And I felt like I need more time. I need more time to grow closer in my relationship to Allah. I need more time to get to know him. I need more time to get to know myself. And I think just your awareness and your intentionality behind that, even if we never reach it, like my one of my teachers talks about how it's not about the destination as much as it is about the journey. We may never find our passion and our purpose in life. For some people, like we don't. Maybe we'll find it in our 80s if we're blessed to live that long, right? Or maybe we're almost kind of, our passion is almost invisible to us. We don't know how impactful we are on somebody else. Like we can be a walking dua to somebody in our lives and we don't even know. And here we are like stressing over, am I doing enough? But maybe you're that for somebody and you don't even know that. And maybe that's your purpose, subhanAllah. That's so beautifully said. I agree 100%. It's really, I guess, the perspective that we take. Because some people don't find their purpose and their passion in their work, their day-to-day work. But it's something that you're doing outside of it. So Dunya, for you, although you spend to your nine to five crunching numbers, in your spare time, you're making such a diligent and beautiful effort to run this podcast and to bring people who you find have experiences or, or knowledge or can bring some different perspective. And you're bringing that to an entire group and audience of people where they, that can resonate for them and help them heal. If that's not purposeful, I don't know what is. Thank you. This is hard to even say for some people, like death is a gift in a way. You know, I had somebody, a friend once asked me, we were just having a conversation and they were saying, well, what's the purpose of life if it's going to end in death? And I I thought like in that moment, like how hyper-focused we are in death in the wrong way that it robs us of all the beautiful moments in our lives right now. Like, who are you surrounded by? Your loved ones, your family, your friends. What are you passionate about? All these things, like it almost kind of, we allow like death to kind of rob us of all the gifts that God has given us in this moment. Like imagine living in the present moment. I think we're so hyper-focused on the future and the what ifs and we're so hyper-focused on the past and what if we did something differently. It's always the what ifs, but not the what is going on now in your life. What has God gifted you today? What did you wake up with that you didn't thank him for last night that he just gave to you without you even making dua for? Like our families, do we even do we even make dua for the fact of like, inshallah, ya Rab, like I wake up with my family by my side healthy. Inshallah, I wake up healthy. Like what about our own health? I think sometimes, yeah, we focus on these things so much so that it robs us of all the beautiful things that are, that are happening for us by the will of Allah, subhanAllah. And sometimes I think I don't want to take away from the hardships of others. You know, I've gone through my own hardships that have really put a veil between myself and my faith and God, but it's like we can't allow that to happen in a sense. And it's, it's that journey of decreasing the distance between you and God that's beautiful, but don't allow that to be the reason why you kind of look at life like it's just something that's going to happen to me and it ends in death. And I think it's just the fact that death exists that makes life that much more of a gift. And I'm starting to realize that. Just the fact that I know that this dunya has an end makes this dunya that much more valuable and that much more beautiful and that much more the need of me needing to really truly experience it and and truly be grateful for all that Allah has given me. How do you view death now that after you've been in this path, even before, maybe even before 
finding yourself on this path on this journey because clearly you were made for it so subhanallah like you're already on this journey but how would you view death in your own terms and how would you kind of want others to view it too i guess everybody comes from a different life path all of us have gone through our own things but i guess like for me like i said i view death now as a gift it's a gift and it's a it's a reminder that the beauty of this dunya is still here and i should appreciate it Oh, you brought up so many good points. Death is a gift. I think that is a perspective that we as Muslims should really become comfortable with and adopt. And the way I read into that too is that this dunya is taught to us or told to us to be one of hardship. It is the abode of trial and tribulation. Death, inshallah, will be our rest. That will be our transition and our return to our beloved, compassionate Lord, where our souls from the moment they exist in this world until the moment we die, we are looking to reconnect to Allah because in our pre-embodied you know, existence, our soul was with Allah and we just want to return back to that. And so every longing that we feel in life, every relationship that we have that we feel is cut off, I feel like on, on a deeper level, on a deeper spiritual level, that's our soul crying out to be connected to the one who created the creation. So our grief in a way is also a grief for or a longing for Allah to be connected back to him. And death is a gift and that it connects us back to him. And so, you know, our spiritual ancestors, and not in a morbid way, again, but in this in this really interesting way, like Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi wrote a beautiful poem about this, and Imam al-Ghazali wrote a beautiful poem about this called On My Deathbed, where they talk about finally being freed from the prison of their body, where the cage of their body, and they say, now my bird has flown. Now my soul is going back to home, to, to, to my real home, and, and leaving this world. And not to say that we can't enjoy this world, that's not what they meant. Like you said, we appreciate it. And it goes back to that idea of the duality and the opposites. One time I was speaking to a care seeker and she asked me, why do we, why can't we just go to heaven straight, straight away? Like, why do we have to go through so much trouble here on on earth? And when we talked about it, really, we came to this learning or this realization that we won't appreciate heaven for what it is if we haven't gone through some hell. Like if we just go directly to heaven are we going to, is, is that comfort and that respite and those those couches that we're going to be laying on and the silky garments that we're going to be, you know, enrobed in and the delicious foods that we're going to be eating and just the presence of total and utter sakina and salam for eternity. How can we appreciate that if we don't know what it's like to be out of that? And so really this world is to give us a taste of what hellfire is. And in a way that's not like scary, like hellfire is not like, to me, it's not only this pit of, of fire that we get thrown in, in, but really our spiritual ancestors, the way they look at it is so poetic. is like this life is a little taste of hell because we are separated from our God, because we are separated from Allah. And really that is the real scary part of hell is that we are completely eternally separated from Allah. At that point, there's no chance to go back. Like, you know, Allah protect us from, from that terrible existence. But being in the hospital has really, really helped me prioritize things in my own life. Like you said, one of the first learnings I've had is that this life is precious and your world can turn upside down in an instant. And that's very much along the lines of what you said. We have people who come into the emergency room for code blues, are not breathing, their heart stopped, 
and their family members are coming in and suddenly part of their grieving process needs to be calling up all the people that they had appointments with and things. We don't wake up every morning thinking, oh, this could be my last day. So what am I going to wear? And what are people going to see me in? And like, do I need to schedule accordingly? We're just kind of on this autopilot and it takes this moment of shock of like interruption for us to suddenly wake up and say, oh my gosh, what am I doing? What What is really meaningful? So I think to me, it is a gift that Allah has given me and something that I'm forever grateful to him. Whether I am able to do this for 40 more years or, or one more year, I will always be grateful for this stage in my life to be able to not have to go through it myself, but to bear witness and support other people going through it is still learning for me. I come back home and I, I have to, you know, I, I spend more time with my children. I make sure that they're getting the hugs that they need, that they're getting that I'm getting the hugs that I need. I'm with my husband, knowing that my parents are getting older. What is my time like with them? So like you're saying, it's not only recognizing the beauty of this life, but also living in it with more mindfulness and intentionality. And I know those are very much buzzwords now, but this has been a part of our tradition since since the beginning of Revelation. These things were always, we practice intentionality and mindfulness five times a day at least through our Salah, if not more. That was beautiful. And the question about what's why can't we just go straight to heaven? I was wondering what the answer was going to be for that question. And subhanAllah, that's such, such a beautiful answer. It's something that, you know, we realize while we're living in this dunya, what's the purpose of hardships? It's because you get to be a little bit more grateful for what you have. And like I said, for the things that you never made dua for, that Allah just gifts you. Even just like the breath that you're breathing right now, the ability to do that. Some people are struggling with just that. And we don't even think twice about us breathing. It's just like we wake up and we expect certain things to happen for us. I think when it comes to the death of my grandmother, I think that was, I think you mentioned it, just something that's like sometimes an awakening for you. And the reason why, I think that was the first time I realized like everything in life, every hardship that we faced, every hardship that I faced, there was either an escape plan or I was able to overcome it. But when it comes to death, we talked about this over the phone, but there is no escape plan when it comes to death. Like that's it. It happens to you. And I think when my grandmother passed away, it kind of made me really self-reflect on my own mortality. Sometimes, like you said, we're just like passing in this dunya, not thinking about anything. And it's full of distractions that you forget about your own mortal being, that you're not immortal. As much as you, you want to make yourself healthy and, and you're living your life and everything seems to be going well for you, we're not immortal. We are made to be mortal beings. I think the one thing that a lot of people struggle with when they do lose somebody is the fact that that person is gone, they passed away, but you're faced with the reckoning of you still being here, you still being alive. It's like life kind of goes on, but in the path that you never imagined for yourself. What would you say to somebody that is kind of struggling with the concept of losing that loved one and now they're faced with just themselves and just that that reckoning of, yeah, you're mortal. It's really hard. It's something, it's a really difficult thought to sit down with yourself and have alone. Yes, doing it alone is probably one of the worst hells I can ever imagine for somebody. And that's really where we see ourselves in chaplaincy is so that you are not alone and do not feel alone, that we embody that that memory because we all know it, but sometimes we forget it in those moments that Allah is with us all the time. But like you said in the very beginning, grief is a beast. Grief is a beast. And some days it will feel like we are in survival mode and we can barely do what we need to do to just get out of bed and do our normal functioning things. And then as time goes on, and as we do the hard inner work to move towards healing and begin that healing process, 
and I say process very intentionally, the bad days or the difficult days, I should say, will begin to be eclipsed with more brighter days where it finally at some point you will notice that you only have a few difficult days sprinkled in to your really good days where before it was the opposite kind of good moments sprinkled in with a lot of challenging days. And I know that people might hear this often. People tell them, be gentle with yourself, be patient, but really I would say find community. And I think this is something else that our tradition recommends and upholds. The burden is not supposed to be on the one who is mourning. The burden is not on the bereaved because it is understandable. Now we know psychologically we are in a fog in those first few days, weeks, months, perhaps. So to have to think about logistics and have to think of like while you're processing the loss of somebody who was there, suddenly the tangible has become intangible and you're trying to make sense out of that. That's where the community steps up and says, I'm going to take care of feeding you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be making sure that you get what you need. When we say it takes a village for everything else, in addition to death, especially in death, it takes a village. So find your village, find your village before the inevitable happens and make sure that you do have that support with trusted people. It could be with professionals. I spent a long time in therapy and trying out different therapists and different techniques until I found something that really connected with me and my my own faith background. But having that support is really, really important. If not for anything, but having somebody be your sounding board as you're trying to make meaning out of the, because we are meaning making beings. That's what Allah has honored us as children of Adam is we have this beautiful faculty of being able to hope and create and feel and put name to the feelings and to the emotions And then eventually in our process, make meaning out of something that was so tragic and so terrible and so difficult so that we can hold it, so that we can just hold it and move on and and integrate it into our lives. And so people will do that in different ways. But I'm reminded of a visit that I had just last week where tragically a college student died uh, and was brain dead after she took some, some recreational drugs and just had a really disastrous effect. And the combination was lethal. And she didn't know that. And her family, you know, drove down from miles away from where they were living. And her mom was speaking to me and just really trying to make sense out of it. And the way that she started to make sense out of it and what gave her comfort was the fact that her daughter chose to be like an organ donor. And so because her daughter was young, she had all of these organs that were very, very healthy and that were going to you know, live on in other people. For her, that was something that was really, really important to honor because she said, maybe somebody like my my daughter had to die for somebody else to have a second chance at life. And for her, that was very comforting in that moment. That was how she was going to hold on to why is my daughter now not here? And why am I here? You know, one of the, the most difficult things to journey alongside somebody is a parent of, of a child who's died because it seems like an inversion of what we would usually expect is the natural thing to happen, which is the parent dies first, the older person dies first. And so people, you know, everyone will have their different process. Everyone will have their different meaning making for somebody, the organ donation, and that would not resonate. They would find something else, right? That my point is to not do it alone and you don't have to do it alone. And even if there's nobody physically there around you, wallahi, wallahi, know that Allah is witnessing at every second and every millisecond and is there to guide you just 
put your hands up, put your palms to the sky and let your heart do the speaking and the talking. And he will answer. He promises us in the Quran, call upon me and I will respond to you. It's a promise from Rabbil Alameen. And so when your heart is in that really, really beautiful raw state, there's no thought like it and there's no response like it. There's no response like it because Allah shows up in those moments in ways that you may have never experienced him showing up before. That's literally how I felt when my grandmother passed. There's these du'as that they were answered in ways that I would never have ever thought that they would unfold. SubhanAllah. But when you're talking about your creator, anything can happen. Um, Anything can unfold. It's just, it's so beautiful and so miraculous. I think also like when it comes to the passing of a loved one, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to accept it. You know, they're not there anymore physically. But, you know, what are ways that we can still connect with them? Because I'm a firm believer that you could still have a relationship with somebody who passed away. Like I said, they're just not here physically. I think another daunting thing that some people go through that, you know, I've I've had friends who've experienced heavy losses, such as their own parents, like their mother or father. And I think that's really, really difficult to witness that. And they always say, like, I feel like I didn't do enough. And I think in this dunya, we'll never feel like we did enough in anything, honestly, in anything, even friendships that end or, or relationships that end or marriages that end whatever it may be. And so, of course, it's compounded and it's doubled when it comes to death because now you really can't make amends with this person. But I I feel like when the person passes away, like you were mentioning Rumi and and Ghazali and everything like that, it's just interesting because I feel like when you're on your deathbed, you almost depart this dunya with just love, immense love for everyone. You almost kind of let go of the harshness and the harsh realities of this dunya and you kind of look at life at what it is. I think that's the gift of being on your deathbed. I hope that makes sense to some people that are listening, but it's almost finally the realization. And I almost kind of feel like we live life backwards. Like the way we should be living is how we are when we approach our deathbed. But yet we're the opposite. Like we're distracted, we're we're distraught with all, all these other things. And then it's just when we finally approach our deathbed, do we realize the purpose of this dunya? Do we realize that like, wow, how important prayers are, how important it is to have a good and healthy relationship with our parents and our loved ones? It's like we take these things for granted until we kind of, finally approach our last moments in this dunya. So it's like an interesting thing that I feel like I'm trying to flip in my life to kind of reverse everything, to almost live every day as if I am on my deathbed. Yes, some days are going to be harder than others. We're still going to be distracted. There's this dunya is full of distractions, but it's just holding on to that thread of hope from Allah. But I think for me, my personal opinion in regards to someone who feels like they didn't do enough for somebody who passed away, I just, I feel like when this person passed away, they only passed away with love for you. They felt like you've done enough. So I think it's not fair for you to stay behind and to torture yourself, especially when this person just loved with this dunya with just ease and, you know, just knowing that they're going to meet their creator. What would you say to somebody like that that feels like, yeah, they, they could have done more with their loved one or spent more time? Mind you, I'm somebody who literally I would rush right after work and, and visit my grandmother every single day when she was sick and whatnot. And even I've always had a close relationship with her, but I felt like I still didn't do enough. And I I, and I laugh at that because I'm like, how, what? There was absolutely no other minute of my life that I could have used to spend more time with her because it was with her. It was with her. I was spending that time with her. So Penelope, how we still kind of torture ourselves when we know that it was not possible to do more when we've done enough in a way. That's a great, great question. And, uh, you know, part of maybe demonstrating what the chaplain could provide in that moment is creating space to explore what that would look like. I would just answer maybe with another question say, what would spending more time with so-and-so look like for you? What do you feel like you felt short in and why? And really allowing the person to articulate that, to name that, to sit in that space 
and to be able to hold it together. And if it was really, truly like I didn't do enough, they lived, you know, my, my grandma's 30 minutes away from me and I don't see her nearly enough as I should. And I need to probably very much get on that, but I would love to have somebody hold space for me for that and say, maybe you didn't do enough in that moment and let's grieve that together because it's also us having that feeling is a byproduct of our grief saying, I wanted more time with this person. I wish I had more time with this person. Um, That hope is beautiful because that is a reflection of our immense love for them. For people who pass that we don't have those emotions or that those thoughts about because we didn't have a connection with them. So that only speaks volumes about the connection you did have and the relationship you did have to highlight that, to honor that, to hold that up. And then to say, how can we work to put those feelings and that angst into something productive now after the exploration has done and the mourning has done in that moment, right, of, of that feeling and what that experience has been to say, OK, what? you're still alive. What is it in your, what, what is our tradition offer by way of coping and healing that you can still offer your loved one? And there are many different things, but it really depends on the person what speaks to them. I mean, there's sadaqa jariya, there's dua, right, you know, from a righteous child or a righteous person that you can make it just connected to every salah. After salah, you make the intention that you'll spend a couple of minutes after you wrap up everything, just making sincere du'a for them. I mean, what better gift and use of your time than somebody who's praying for your soul after you've left this earth and praying that you have the mercy and compassion and that you're admitted to highest levels of Jannah. Just for anybody listening, family, friends, whoever, complete strangers, I would love for that gift, right? After I depart this earth, there's no better gift. We talk about legacy projects in our chaplaincy. So some people find it really important to start nonprofits or foundations or movement or something in in honor of the person who they loved as a way of spending more time with them, right? It really talks, now we're talking about creative, how can we spend more time with them after they've departed? And you've really, you know, touched upon that. It could be something very small. Maybe it could be something a lot larger. It just depends on on what your capacity is and and what your meaning-making capacity is as well. Dua is so important. I, that's like literally one of the major things that I do. That's, I think, why I go to the cemetery. My mom tells me all the time, you can make dua from anywhere. Why do you have to go to the cemetery? Again, she's trying to, she's not comfortable with that whole concept. Again, not everybody's comfortable with going to the cemetery. And this was her actual, her own mom. But for me, it is. And that's what I do. Because I know my grandmother's dua really, truly are protecting me in this dunya. She always constantly made dua for me. So what better way to return that favor than now for me to do that for her? And I think that's like one of the most beautiful ways that I can still connect with her. I don't know. I've read this before and I, I'm, I'm going to choose to believe it because I read it in an Islamic book, but it says if you do go to the cemetery and you do talk to them, that they do hear you in a way or feel you. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but again, it's, I guess maybe there's a difference in opinion in this, but I did read it once and I was like, that's it. That's all I need. I needed to read it once mm-hmm. and for me to believe it. And I heard as long as it's good words that you're saying that they are going to hear you. So for me, again, that's honestly what brings ease to my heart. I think I just want to end this on just talking about what has death taught you personally? How has death been a teacher for you? Because I feel like, honestly, death is 
truly the teacher of life. It teaches us to be more grateful and to have more gratitude and to hold more space for our loved ones. I used to sit down and listen to stories of my grandparents and my mom and dad and all that. But the one word I held on for my grandmother was the last absolute word she spoke to me. She had stage four ovarian cancer. So at the end, like you, you've mentioned in other patients, she couldn't speak anymore. She barely could move. She was very heavily sedated. And subhanAllah, like the last day that she was able to speak, she just, um, I don't want to get emotional. She just looked right at me and she just said, Habibdi. And that was literally the last word uh, she said. And I've, I've held on to that. And it's so beautiful. Like that word, I never used to think twice about it. But to know like that was the last word she said, it just, I don't know. It's just, it, it feels so important to me, so special to me. So I think like, to me, that's what death teaches me. Like to be grateful for what I have and what I'm surrounded by and what Allah has chosen to give me, specifically me. Things that I feel like I don't even deserve, but my creator thinks that I deserve. Like how beautiful is that? But yeah, I think I think that's for me what death has taught me um, or just losing loved ones. And and I, I really want to emphasize the fact of grief has no expiration date. I mean, here as an example, I'm still very emotional about my grandmother. Like it still kind of hurts to this day. And I know there's like five stages of grief, but I feel like they're not going in order. It's all over the place. And I'm okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. Some days are easier than others. It's almost in a bizarre way, some of those two that like I'm almost, I catch myself grieving people that are actually alive in my life. And I'm like, why do I do this? Like I, and like I said, like again, like, you know, death is beautiful in a sense because we meet our creator, but don't allow it to rob you of what you have right now. And like, so here I am like sitting and thinking like, oh my God, what if I lose my parents one day? How am I going to ever like deal with that? But it's, I'm robbing myself of the moment. Instead of thinking those thoughts, I should allow myself to snap out of it and actually go and spend time with my parents. Instead of planning these what ifs, like what am I going to do if my parents pass away? How am I going to live my life? Actually going and spending time with them. I think sometimes we kind of dwell in despair. And again, that's a characteristic of, of Iblis. That's something that like you don't want. You don't want that. Um, so I, I try to counteract that with just more gratefulness and gratitude. And I do it through actions. And of course, dry is always super important. But what has that taught you about life or just, I guess, in general? Yeah. And I honor your tears. You know, we have a theology of tears where our Prophet described them as a mercy and a rahmah. So don't ever feel like you have to apologize for rahmah. That's a great question. Dad has taught me that everything passes, that everything has an expiration date, except save for Allah Ta'ala. And that has really been a learning that's been reinforced repeatedly in my work and in my life. And now as I'm getting older and people are, I'm noting that more of the older generation is passing and dying, that in some ways this is a comfort because we know that during difficult times that it's going to pass and it's not going to be forever, including the grief time and the grief process. Alhamdulillah for the gift of healing. And I would say that it's really helped me or taught me to know where to invest my time. So if we think about it as if time is an investment, just like anything else, am I going to invest my time in things that are fleeting and things that are going to perish and things that are going to expire? Or am I going to put most of my time and my effort in the creator that is everlasting, is the first and the last, who is forever, who is eternal? And we, you know, a lot of times maybe we, we're afraid to talk about death because we think by talking about it that we will manifest it, that somehow it will come to us or upon us just because we, we name it. But it's important to note that the Qur'an mentions mot, which is the Arabic word for death, over 160 times in the Qur'an. 
our beloved Prophet said the wisest among us is the, is the person who thinks about death often and plans for it. So it's really important for us as Muslims to embrace the remembrance. And we see it all around us if we open our eyes to it. So we don't have to wait for somebody to die tragically or for our own deaths. We're seeing, you know, death is all around us if we open our hearts and our eyes to it just by the falling of the leaves, by the nature that's around us. There is a death and life cycle that also Allah talks about in the Quran. I like to think of it, for example, I saw a beautiful uh, YouTube video on Ghusl al-Mayyit, which is the ritual washing, uh, such a beautiful, beautiful ritual in our tradition of the, the body after death. And that actually many of the actions mirror our ghusl process in this life. So when I'm doing ghusl, whether you're doing it as like a sunnah on Friday or after you finish your period or whatever else, it, I connect that to, okay, today I'm doing this ghusl for myself. I'm washing my hair. I'm washing my body with my own hands intentionally. But sometime soon, somebody else is going to be doing that for me. These same actions, the same body, but I'm not going to, my soul is not going to be in my body to be able to do it for myself. There is an ancient philosophy that, uh, that talks about remembering death five times a day, that they have ritual practices. And I'm like, hmm, that sounds familiar. I heard from somebody who shared on Instagram with me that they're like, we were doing prayer spaces, like people's special prayer spaces. And they literally sent me a picture of their their janamas or their sajada, their prayer rug, sandwiched in between like a couch and a coffee table. And they're like, this reminds me of the space that's going to be in my grave. Just a very confined. And if you look at the sajada, like it really is like a grave size, right? So every time they step in front of that sajada, it is a tangible reminder for them that this is going to be my space, my home for some time after I leave this, this world. So there are little practices and things that we can incorporate into our life to, to help us feel more familiar, maybe if not more comfortable, just familiar with death, have that in the forefront. We don't all have to be in the hospital. We don't always have to be waiting for, for something like that. But I think death teaches us also that because it's an inevitable and because our Prophet recommended that we prepare for it, not just logistically, but we want to be mentally and spiritually incrementally, gradually, comfortably at our own pace, being able to come to terms with the ending of our lives here. And what does that mean for us? And then I think that will make every second, every minute, every hour, every day more meaningful, more intentional, inshallah, more purposeful. And that really is the point of, of us living here. Like we are called khulafa, we are called the caretakers of the earth. By our very existence of being here, we are given a purpose. We are caretakers. And whichever way that manifests for each and every one of us, like you said, whether it's with a family member, a loved one, a project, work, we have a purpose here. And to live into that intentionally, inshallah, will, will make it a lot easier. Thank you. Thank you for your response. That was just honestly laced with so many, so many reminders that I feel like when I walk away from this conversation that, yeah, intentionality is super important. It's, it's how we invest this time that Allah gave us every day. He gives us 24 hours, not one second less and not one second more. So 
what are you doing different today than yesterday? We can't keep living our lives the same way every single day. Like, what are we doing? And I think it's just so beautiful. And I feel like I'm a little further than my family when talking about death in a way, because again, like how I experienced it. And, and again, like my grandmother was a grandmother to so many grandchildren, but it just took a toll on me different than everybody else. I'm not saying that they don't care. No, it's just how I'm now choosing to live my life afterwards, how she was kind of like that reality check for me. I, I think another thing that grief and death both taught me is not to hold on to kind words. I think sometimes we don't want to be too cheesy. There's this running joke um, amongst my friends. They kind of, it's, it's more so funny they're not really making fun of me, but it's just like they laugh at how much I say love you to just random strangers, like especially when I have this podcast and there's you have so many beautiful souls just connecting with me on here that I've never physically connected with. I don't talk to on a daily basis, but I can't help but just to say I love you. Maybe that they needed to hear it that day. Maybe they have nobody that they that has said that to them. And for me, it's like almost it's nothing. It's like easy for me to say that, but it's just like it's just this running joke between my friends and I. And I'm like, I would rather be known for somebody that constantly just like, you know, says I love you than just to hold on to these words and have them nestled beneath my tongue. What do I do I have for my family? What do I do I have for myself? Like what do I did I make for myself today? Did you even include yourself in your du'as? Why do we not think that we're worthy of our du'as when Allah even gave us that thought? He was the one that birthed that thought in our minds to even make a du'a for ourselves or wanting to make du'a for ourselves. So I, I think a lot of times we have a lot of things nestled beneath our tongues that we really need to like allow them to find the escape route and just to be able to, like you said, just invest our time in this dunya and, and, and making sure that we're prepared for the akhirah. And I think these conversations are super important. And I really want to thank you, Sundas, for these. I think one question that I missed um, that somebody asked is when you're grieving, is there a connection between how you grieve and how connected you are with your faith? Because there are some people that are almost shunned for crying and mourning for their loved ones. Nobody's ever told me to, well, actually they did once there, but they kind of said in a loving way, like, oh, it's okay. Don't cry. She loved you and all that. They remind me of how much she loved me, but I'm like, just let me grieve. Let all of this come out of me, please. Because the last thing I need to hear is for somebody to kind of put a stop to how I'm mourning. Islamically, what is your perspective on that, I guess, or what have you learned in regards to crying and mourning for a loved one who has passed? And then I would love to just like spare enough time to talk about your book that I've ordered. And mashallah, I, I, I told you, like, I was just like, you know, out and about and I devoured it just like that in one sitting. Because I, I loved it. I loved reading stuff like this, especially from your perspective and how you've dealt with death and grief, especially in your career path, too. Yeah, I would say that shutting somebody down in the midst of that process is very, very unhealthy, that we don't interrupt that. That our Prophet, وسلم, when he was mourning the death of his infant son, Ibrahim, that he cried so much that the companions were a little bit startled and that they they asked him, like, Ya Rasulullah, like, your tears, what's going on? And, he, and going back to the theology of tears, which is a term that was coined by a fellow chaplain friend of mine, who she was reminding me in my moment when I was apologizing, like, remember our theology of tears, that our tears are rahmah from Allah, but that we don't go to excess. And the reason, and I heard this also, uh, this teaching from Chaplain Suhaib, uh, may uh, Allah heal him and grant him full shifa, inshallah, that he talks very poignantly about death because he's got one foot in, one foot out at this point. But he mentioned that the reason that the Prophet encourage us not to go to excess, to, to beat our chest or to yell out and do that is out of actually respect for the soul. So when you talked about the soul hears us past death, that is still is around and with the body. And so that the soul is is not being disturbed or, or affected by our pain and our cries, but we do so in a way that is balanced. We're always a community of balance and a tradition of balance. So that there's room for us to cry, but just not to go to excess. And then I also wanted to, to say that we sometimes utter things 
in the moment of tragedy or in the moment of crisis that we're saying almost out of mind. So I'm reminded of a time where I was supporting a large Muslim family and their mother, you know, struggled for a very, very long time in the ICU and she finally passed. And this was a large family, many, many siblings. And, you know, you can see each one of them, subhanAllah, reacting in a different way. But I remember one of them fell to his knees in the middle of the hospital hallway and was crying out. And I won't repeat what he said, but basically like crying out to Allah in a way that, and he's a very faithful person. And I didn't, you know, gave him the space, let him do that. He picked himself up. We, we, you know, went through whatever else we needed to go through. But he came back to me, circled back a little bit later. It was very sheepish and said, I hope you don't think any less of me for what I just, for what came out of my mouth. And I, I had to reassure him that like, this is not, do you don't feel ashamed for things that you utter in a moment of emotion? Like, yes, we all have this ideal of inshallah, inshallah, we, we you know, embody the absolute patience and say all the right things that we're supposed to say in the moment. And we train ourselves to be able to do that. Like that's the goal and that's the ideal, but not to judge ourselves so harshly or hold any less compassion for ourselves for speaking those, those words out of a place of utter pain utter pain and utter anguish and that we really don't mean. And so we are encouraged to release even physically, physiologically, the release of our tears is something that's really, really important for our process to be able to let that go, to be able to have, it's really, really important to have space and also have people who can just let us have that space for ourselves. So if they're there to hold our hands or to give us a hug, but when we're speaking or when we're just crying, when we're sitting in silence, all of that is really, really important. So, and there's there's an importance to each one of them in the process. Sometimes we just need to be silent. And sometimes I remember going through, you know, having a really, really difficult time for myself. And I literally could not be in the house by myself. And so I called up a really, really dear Muslim sister who lives, happens to live 10 minutes away. And I knew she was at home because she has young kids. And I said, I can't, I just can't be alone can I just come over? And like on my way and on the car ride to her home, I just remember like I, I was made, I was in the early in the morning. So I was doing my job in the car, even part of my wig. And I just remember every line like hitting me and hitting me and hitting me every dot where I was just, I was like, like sobbing by the time I got to her door and she said nothing. She opened the door and she like almost like a mother and I'm getting emotional myself. Like she just pulled me into her lap and just held me. And didn't say anything. And I probably cursed. I said really terrible things. I was really upset and angry. I was grief in a different way. But she spent three hours just holding me. Sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, that really is. That really is. And then making me delicious coffee afterwards. And <laughs> of like stuffing me with cake. Just also really wonderful. <laughs> of course. But, and I, I tell her, I tell her this. And actually, it's been a year. And in the year on on the anniversary of that day, I actually went and I got her a gift and wrote her a card and just said, I will never forget. I will never forget what you offered me in that moment, which really started off my healing process for me. We can all be that for each other. So when you talked about loving people and telling people, I love you, there are these phrases that we're you know, encouraged to say at end of life. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. I forgive myself, all of these things that we don't have to wait until death again to say that, but also more than the words, how we treat each other. And I know there's this movement now of being kind, but it goes far beyond that. I think there's a collective grief that we're experiencing right now with the pandemic, with everything going on. There's so many challenges, subhanAllah, may Allah alleviate 
all of the burdens for us um, in some way, shape and form. But there are these angels that are among us and that we can embody that angelic presence as well for, for holding other people, for making space for them, for showing them love, if not telling them you love them. Um, what does love look like and what does that mean? And knowing that the grief process is in a way a reflection of our love and a friction of that emotion. Like what more beautiful expression can we have of that? SubhanAllah, that is so visceral, that is so raw. There's no filter, there's no mask to grief. It's our realest, truest selves in that moment. Like our heart is speaking and is yelling. It's an awesome experience. And I say it's a beast, but now looking back and like seeing myself go through it, I'm like, subhanAllah, that we even have the faculty and the ability. Like that's why I say alhamdulillah for healing, to be able to look back on that journey and even going through it right now and still getting triggers and all of that, but still like we, we see a bone like when, or, or a wound, right? We can see it tangibly when when it's healing and how the skin forms over it and there's a new layer and all of these things and we can appreciate that for what it is but I think to be able to look internally and see that internal healing and how those wounds grow new skin and how they're really tender at first and then they come a little bit stronger and like all of that is through the grace and mercy of Allah Ta'ala that we don't have to walk around with these wounds externally or internally completely open and yes it's hard work and yes we have to wear the cast right like cast on our heart or cast in our soul and, and wait the prerequisite amount of time. But what comes out afterwards is just, it's just an appreciation for it. It goes back to the duality, right? The opposites that we can appreciate when we've healed and when we are healing and look back and say, look how far I've come. I absolutely loved what you just said. It reminded me of like how this whole conversation honestly just is almost like went full circle. How we started out with talking about how the loved ones in our lives, sometimes they're they're the walking duas. Like if you're struggling with why or what your purpose is, like all you needed was that friend to hold you. In, and you said that's when you embarked on your healing journey. It's like little do the people know in our lives how much they've impacted us or how much you've impacted somebody else. And when it comes to that moment of loss and you're grieving somebody and it's right away and it's so fresh and you have this almost displaced anger. And unfortunately, like I've even been there where you blame this anger towards Allah. But it's like, little do you know that it's Allah's mercy that's going to help you to heal you. And my mom always said this, like no matter who you lose, not that you'll get over it, but Allah just grants you with so much mercy and so much rahmah that you're going to just one day be able to just like think about their memory and it's not going to hurt you so bad. You're not going to feel so debilitated and so paralyzed that somehow, someway Allah always just kind of heals us in, in our own way without us even knowing. And it's not an overnight process. It's truly a journey. I never believed people. When they said like there's life after or like you'll get better, I'm like, mm, doesn't feel that way. But like, yes, there there really is. There exactly. Really is. There is. I, I think I want to just leave one like piece of advice for anybody that just lost somebody. Um, Again, this pandemic really took a toll on us. Some of us have dealt with our own mental breakdowns that I've never even thought that I would ever have. And it, it was it was very difficult. There's a lot that we've grieved. But I think when the moment my grandmother died, it was, yeah, I was, I maybe didn't utter these words out loud about how I was angry at God, but I had it, the thoughts in my head. But I urge anyone, if you, if you feel that way, if you feel any confusion, is just to kind of delve a little bit more into our faith. Um, I think that's what I did. I It was hard at first, but I kind of like dived right into our faith. And I came across a book. I, I'll share it, I guess. I forgot the name of it, but I'll share it after the conversation. There was like a chapter about, because my grandmother had cancer, but it was a chapter about if your loved one really left this dunya physically sick and, and physically in pain, it's really just Allah washing away any sins that they have. And it was just gave me such a comforting feeling like that in a way, I know we, we can't say this 100%, but like, 
like I felt like subhanAllah ta'ala just showing us that she's going to be of the people of the heavens inshallah ya rab like this lady was so kind and I know everybody says this about their loved ones but she was just so kind never hurt a soul kept to herself and that's why I think I was angry it's like why did she deserve to leave the way that she did but Allah has a reason and a purpose for everything and sometimes you you will never even understand it like for me this is this is what I just I'm going to hold on to the fact that that physical ailment is going to wash away any sin that she had even if she had one and inshallah she'll be in the heavens and I, I think that's good enough for me so I think I urge anyone that has a sense of confusion or the sense of anger to just I know it's hard but to dive a little bit deeper into our faith and wallah subhanallah you'll find the most beautiful answers there I'm reminded of two parts two things in the Quran that come up for people who feel like maybe they'll say they're saying the wrong things that in in one um chapter of the Quran there's uh, the early community of Muslims who were with the Prophet and they uh, were going through hardship and they said, where is the help of Allah? Like they, the community of believers, and it describes them as believers, where is Allah in all of this? Where, like, when is he going to come and save us? And immediately afterwards, like not an ayah separates between their question and the response of Allah, where he says, indeed, I am near, the help of Allah is near. In the same ayah, not even a breath separates them. And in another one, I'm reminded of Maryam when she's in the throes of, of labor and she's going through something so painful all by herself. And she said, I wish I had died. I wish I was dead instead of having to go through this. And what does Allah immediately tells her, refresh yourself and comfort yourself. Take some water from the stream that I'm providing for you. Shake the tree and have some nutrition. Basically saying, I am here for you. I'm going to provide for you. I will send you everything that you need, even if you feel by yourself in that moment. So like to, to think of our, our spiritual ancestors, again, again, people of true belief, of connection with Allah, that they uttered these words. And, and not to, to make ourselves feel like really terrible about it, but to also know back to your point, our tradition is a tradition of healing. Our tradition has practices that are being now scientifically proven to be healing from trauma, to help us reach our wholeness, to reach our self-actualization, to reach our full capacity. And the more we can learn about them, the more we can practice them, the more we can use them more regularly, whether it's through salah, whether it's through dhikr, whether it's through the melodious recitation or listening to of the Qur'an, in jama'ah prayer, in community, fasting, they're all, every single ritual has such depth that we're only beginning to understand, even at a, a very minuscule level right now, the, the depth of their healing capacity. And we have the tools at our disposal, but it's just a matter of, inshallah, widening our toolbox and, and really understanding. And that's really my passion. And, and in my writing now and, and what I'm putting, trying to put out on social media is trying to make those connections and help people see those connections for themselves. I, I really want to thank you for your post online. Um, I really look forward to your snaps, little do you know, but like, I absolutely love them because you, it's like these little gems and little wisdoms and little insights that you share just through snap that honestly make a difference in just my day to day. Just like somebody just sharing a 15 second snap of anything related to our faith and, and the lectures that you watch and you listen to honestly just helps me. And I, I think it's so beautiful. And, and I think that's a great way to invest our time in this dunya is just to share this knowledge with one another. One other way that you've done that is just through your book. I would love to just finish 
off with it and talk about it. And like I said, I absolutely loved it. I devoured it in one sitting. And of course, I'm going to also host a giveaway because I, I just, I loved it so much. And I really want people to be able to learn more about what a Muslim chaplain is and, and just to be more comfortable with the idea of, of this topic and, and your career path and everything like that. And I think it's so beautiful. So if you don't mind just talking a little bit about it, that that would be great. Thank you so much, Dunya, for the plug. Alhamdulillah, it's the labor of love. It really was born out of my process of trying to understand what a chaplain is, which people will find. Like even my mom early on when I was still doing my end she was like, Sundas, just tell me what is it that you do? Do you, because my friends keep asking me, what is chaplaincy? I don't know how to answer them. That's I don't so even know funny. what my daughter does. <laughs> so like, do you just sit and hold the hand of people who are dying? And I'm like, no, mom, I'm not training for three years and going for like 4,000 hours of competency to hold somebody's hand. But yes, in a way. So it was really me trying to figure out this intersection between being a woman, being a Muslim, and then being a chaplain, which is so often characterized or or has its foundations maybe in the Judeo-Christian framework, and is still very much, but it's changing now the landscape of chaplaincy, but really figuring out where in my tradition do I find chaplains or chaplaincy or pastoral care or accompaniment or spiritual development, really rereading the seerah and rereading the Quran through the lens of all of these new tools that I'm learning as a chaplain through these programs. And then also making meaning out of my experiences. So I've never, I had, I've never, alhamdulillah, or maybe not, you know, however we want to look at it in a perspective, I've never experienced a death of somebody who's close to me. So my experience of death was with, was in the emergency room in a code. And that, that was my first experience being with a dead body. What was that like for me? What were the subsequent ones like that for me? What did it mean to progress from being a chaplain or seeing myself as a chaplain just as somebody who comes to read Surah Yasin at the end of the day and then walk out versus really leaning into the discomfort of that space and, and asking and talking and doing storytelling and having conversations with people about their grief, right? And uh, more than that, I should say that I think not only my mom was confused about what I do, my community is, was confused and was like, could you just tell us what a chaplain is? And I didn't have a, I didn't have an answer for them. I couldn't sum it up in like a sentence. Now I can, right? And I feel like I, I have an understanding of that. But before I was like, uh, well, I kind of do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And just by the end of it, they were just so confused, like, wait, what? So what I started to do was at the time I was only on Facebook, I was like, instead of telling somebody what I do, let me show them. My degree at UCLA was circling back. Remember when I wanted to be a novelist and do creative writing and write these books? I leaned into that space and started writing stories anonymously and changing different details and all of that. So it's confidential at all times. Telling stories of like giving a window into my day at the hospital and the different things that I do to, to help my Muslim community understand A, what services are offered to them at the hospital should they you know, God forbid, find themselves there, um, how they can utilize a chaplain, and then B, just show people what chaplains are able to offer and what we actually do by way of spiritual advancement and spiritual um, meaning making and emotional accompaniment. I have your book right now in my hand. I want to grab it so I can get the title, but it's Musings of a Muslim Chaplain. And I absolutely love it. It's just the, even the cover is very inviting. My brother designed it. Oh, really? I love it. Mm -hmm. And my husband edited it and my friend edited it and they published. I mean, this was a, when I say labor of love, I'll say that I actually didn't publish it myself, that this was a gift from my husband 
and my one of my good friends and other loved ones who put it together for me and presented it to me after I graduated as a gift. And then I went back and kind of like changed things around and, and moved things and whatnot um, to make it my own. But really, it started from their belief in me. So when I say it takes a village, I would have never believed in myself enough to put something out there, especially my writing. It was only for like my tiny social media bubble. And that was it. And I never, ever could have imagined that it would be read by Muslims and non-Muslims alike. And so it really is a blessing. And I thank them first and foremost for even believing in me that, that I had something to say. That's what I'm saying. Like, I can't thank God enough for the people he surrounds us with, the people that see our potential before we even see our own potential. These are your words. Yes, it was edited. Yes, the cover art is so beautiful and somebody else created it for you, but it's it's still your words and subhanAllah. And like you said, it goes back to it takes a village because yeah, sometimes it's it's, it's kind of intimidating to think of, oh, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to release. No, it sometimes it's nice and helpful when you have other people surrounding you and doing that for you and kind of like just jumping on the journey with you, like I jumping onto the journey with you. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. But again, I want to remind everyone it's called Musings of a Muslim Chaplain. I am going to host a giveaway for it, but I still really want people to also go out there and just purchase it for themselves. I think it's just a nice read. And I love how you have a kind of in a form of journal entries, just literally, it's just like your unfiltered thoughts. And I, I, I think that's why I really, truly appreciated the way it was written. What's the best way that people can reach out to you? Again, this book, I believe it could be purchased anywhere, anywhere that sells books. Um, I highly recommend going to even your local bookstore online. They also sell it. So I think that's where I'm going to purchase it from, but or purchase more copies from. But what are other ways that people can connect with you online? Like I said, um, I do connect with you on Instagram. I absolutely lo- love that. If you can share your handle and if you're on YouTube or anywhere else, that would be great. I know you have some lectures out there as well. So if people just search your name, they can also find you that way too. Yep, all of that. Yeah. If you just search my name, uh, I have more talks actually on death and grieving um, in different contexts and different conversations. My Instagram handle is by underscore the pen. So it really is about um, this book and then also writings and and other little like bite-sized reminders throughout the day to do wicked or to spend some time in reflection um, or things, patient visits that I'll see or experiences I'll have in the hospital that you know I'll post on my stories that were really meaningful and impactful for me that I'd like to share. Facebook, just my name again, if you want to follow. I'm constantly, I'm still writing a lot of vignettes um, from my hospital time. And so I post that mostly on on Facebook and the windows again into those experiences. And then just feel free to message me. I'm, you know, I'm not anybody who seriously just reach out to me and I'm, I'm more than happy to get to know you, really want to get to know you. I think I've met some really, really beautiful people through these methods and these platforms that I never thought would be possible, subhanAllah. So the world is getting smaller and in, in really beautiful ways. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much once again, Sundas, for the work that you do. Thank you for just opening the doors for for this career path. And and it's almost like I don't want to even call it career path because I just feel like it's just so beautiful and so spiritual that it, I feel like it's more than that. The way you're connecting with somebody, it's more than just a career. It's almost like your way of life. And subhanAllah, I think you are building yourself a, a place in the akhirah while doing the work that you're doing here. Inshallah, Ya Rab, Allah grants all of your wishes and all of your du'as and keeps your family healthy and safe. And for anyone who's listening, because I think we need to have more of these conversations. Within these conversations, we can even find healing. Even if we haven't started our healing journey or whatnot, this could be the point of where you start. But I really want to thank you, Sundas. Thank you so much for the work that you do again. You're, you're honestly you. incredible and so sweet. Thank you for doing your work, Sunya. Thank you so much for your efforts and, and carving out these spaces where we can have these important conversations. 
really, really appreciate you. It's an honor as always. I always say to every guest because it truly is just to be surrounded by such incredible Muslim women within our communities or different communities. It's 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 a different feeling. It's truly a sisterhood that I never thought existed. And here it is. But I really want to thank you, Sundas. And I can't wait for anyone, everyone to listen to this episode. And inshallah, you know, people definitely find a, find it to be beneficial because I truly did myself. Thank you so much, Sundas. Inshallah. Thank you so much.